Last week, we began this series to talk about the journey of faith and specifically this idea um, of what we, what we do when we experience what is often referred to as deconstruction. Now, the way we define deconstruction last week is deconstruction is the dismantling of traditional cultural norms, values, and ideologies. And despite how challenging it could be for you to think about what that might look like, particularly if you're thinking about the idea of what it would feel like or look like um, for somebody to dismantle another person's long-held beliefs or practices, we were reminded that even this process, when led by the Holy Spirit, can actually lead somebody to a faith that is stronger and even more faithful to Jesus. See, the truth is that as we follow Jesus, that something at some point will cast a shadow onto what you believe. And maybe that's an experience you had. A conversation and and a comment that somebody makes about your faith. Or you're going through a trauma and somebody who's a Christian says something that's not helpful. Or maybe it's a particular teaching that you grew up hearing in the church. Or the way you experience a dichotomy between what your parents taught and what the church taught. And how you experience all of those things. At some point, as a follower of Jesus, something will cast a shadow on what it is that you believe. That something, in a sense, will seem to block the light. The thing that you once saw so clearly will be overshadowed by something else. And on one hand, it may seem that that is just evidence that you no longer believe. On the other hand, the doubt is actually evidence of the faith. The struggle is a sign of faith, not the lack of it. It's a reminder that there's some faith still there, belief that things could be different. A.J. Soboda, in his book, After Doubt, describes deconstruction this way. He said, deconstruction is a double-edged sword. It can edify our faith by helping us critically rethink wrong beliefs. But it can also go too far and bring our faith to nothing. Any belief we uncritically received at some point that remains hostile or opposed to the biblical message of Jesus Christ needs to be deconstructed. And so on one hand, what, pe- what people may often respond to this idea of deconstruction is they can see where it at times has gone too far and say this is evil, this is bad. On the other hand, I think it is important for us to ask how can we, uh, how can we critically consider any belief that we previously uncritically received? How can we think about the things and the paths we are headed on? In other words, how can we even consider deconstructing our deconstruction? Because what is true about our faith is if we, if we are moving away from one thing, maybe that's the way we've been taught to follow Jesus or something that we believed when we're growing up. If we move away from that, we also automatically are moving towards something else. And so what I want us to consider today and what I mean by deconstructing our deconstruction is if we are moving away from something that we've been taught in regards to our relationship with Jesus, what if we also considered are we deconstructing the thing that we started believing when we stopped believing something else? Or did we just uncritically decide we're going to believe whatever's different than what we once believed before? So to help us, I'd like to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to spend some time in this text because I believe that what Paul teaches us here can help us with this double-edged sword of deconstruction to, to go about the process in a way that is helpful and will allow us to remain faithful to Jesus. I'll begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes this. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you but bold when away, I beg you. 
that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now Paul uses some important language here about the weight of the battle that is taking place in our world. Now Paul uses warfare language here, um, which could be filled with baggage for you depending on your background. What's helpful to realize is that when Paul writes this to the first century Christians, he writes it as, as a group of people who are incredibly nonviolent in the way they live out their faith. In fact, they are sacrificial in response because of the gospel. And so Paul writes it because he understands he wants them to realize the significance of the battle that is not about a war that gets lived out with the sword, but a war war that is waged in their minds. And so Paul uses this language because it is a battle. And so he says, I want to highlight just a few verses for us. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. He wants us to understand that the battle that is happening here is a battle for our minds. A battle as the enemy is fighting for, uh, for the space in our mind beliefs about ideas. Paul suggests even by our very presence in the world. That in our very, by our very presence and relationships with the people around us. That a battle is taking place. A battle that is confronting and challenging the way we believe, the way we live, the way we act. I love the way John Mark Comer describes this in his book, Live No Lies. He, he describes it by saying about this battle, he says, It's deceptive ideas play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. In other words, he is, he, what he's saying is this battle is a ba battle for the ideas in your mind. And the enemy is the devil. And the enemy from the very beginning has been a liar. And what he does is he, he gives deceptive ideas that play into the disordered desires of our heart, our own sinful flesh. That our sinful flesh is bent inward on ourselves. That there are cravings that are not of God. And so the lies that the enemy speaks plays into those desires. And our world, Paul describes it as our world, those, those play in and normalize those desires. And so the enemy is at work. He's at work battling to get us to believe lies. To get us to live in a way that is counter to the way of Jesus. And for our world to normalize sin instead of normalize the kingdom. And so Paul is using this warfare language because he wants followers of Jesus who will fight back. To who will not simply take things the way they are. But to fight back against these ideas that he says come with divine power. Which is important because he's not saying this comes with your own willpower. He's saying it's a divine power. That the power that you have comes from God himself. That God has given you power, Paul says, to demolish strongholds. Now this phrase is really important for us here in this series. Because that word demolish in the Greek actually means to tear down. Or in other words, it means to deconstruct. That we have a divine power to deconstruct strongholds. To dismantle the things that are holding us captive. Paul says to deconstruct anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
And so last week we especially touched on that there are things in our faith that should be dismantled because they have cast a shadow onto our faith. And so on one hand, the things and the strongholds that we must deconstruct are, are the experiences, are the teachings that don't lead us towards Jesus. Maybe even experiences in the church or poor teaching in the church that should be dismantled because it was not faithful to Jesus. And for some of you, that's what's held you captive. That you've been enslaved by poor teaching, by an experience you had with other Christians. At the same hand, what Paul wants to say is, not only do I want you to deconstruct that, but I also want you to consider deconstructing the way of the world. Because as you deconstruct the way you've been taught to follow Jesus, perhaps we also need to deconstruct the alternative ways of the world. If deconstruction is a dismantling of long-held beliefs, as we move towards something else, should we not also critically evaluate whatever it is we're moving towards? If we are going to deconstruct one path, is it not wise to also deconstruct the alternatives? And perhaps you don't trust Paul as somebody to, to follow his wisdom or insight, but does that not just make logical, reasonable sense to not just uncritically believe something else and fall into the same trap you fell into in the first place? Now, the way that we can do that, I think, can be done by asking a simple question. Now, it's hard to find the answer to the question, but I believe it's a simple question that I believe Christian or non-Christian, it, it, it it gives us a glimmer of what is in the human heart of all people. And the question I think we should ask is, what path is good for human flourishing? Whether you're Christian or not, I think this is the way we should ultimately evaluate and consider the paths we're on. Is that path actually good for humanity? Now, for our purposes today, the way I want us to compare and contrast and think about these things, particularly when we talk about deconstruction, is I want us to use these two phrases, the way of Jesus versus the way of the world. Now, when we talk about deconstructing the way of Jesus, what I mean is deconstructing the way you've been taught to follow Jesus. Because what we all know about religion and Christianity specifically is that there are thousands of different ways that people have been taught to follow Jesus. And so I believe deconstructing and dismantling that in order to arrive at something that's the way of Jesus, not just the way you've been taught to follow Jesus, is incredibly helpful. And when I say the way of the world, again, this is a generalization because, again, there can be a thousand different ways the world teaches us to believe something, anything different than following Jesus, many of which even disagree with, with themselves. Um, it's generally speaking, though, anything Paul is describing as setting itself up against the knowledge of God. So I want to do for, what I want to do here for us is give us an example of how we might deconstruct these ideas. Now, to do this, what I realize is I'm opening a can of worms, and the topic we're going to use to do this is po possibly one of the most divisive topics in the world today, um, but I believe it's also the most prominent, and because of that, is incredibly helpful to do so. Now, if you are new to faith, um, if you are new to following Jesus, I just want you to know, um, I realize that you may not trust me as a pastor yet, um, but my hope is that you trust me in, in knowing that this is not a pet topic or something that I just want to talk about this because this is, this is fun. But I believe this is a great example to help us work through this process. So I want us to talk about these two, the way of Jesus and the way of the world, when it comes to the issue of sexuality. So the way that we could summarize these two varying perspectives, these, these different paths, the way of Jesus, we're going to summarize with the idea of one man and one woman. 
Now, the way of the world, the way we're going to summarize that, and again, this is generalizing and simplifying. It's incredibly, incredibly complex that followers of Jesus have disagreed on all kinds of these points. Um, But it's also very helpful to consider this way. The way of the world we're going to describe as love is love. And what I want us to do is if we are going to deconstruct both of these, we have to ask some really hard questions. Because in one sense, there are a lot of ways we've been taught to follow Jesus when it comes to the issue of sexuality, one man and one woman, which just, just as, as a side note, that is what I do believe is faithful to the Bible and the way of Jesus. All right, so just my bias is there. Um, but in there, there is a lot that we should deconstruct about the way we've been taught to follow Jesus when it comes to the teaching of one man and one woman. And likewise, if we have moved away from a teaching of one man and one woman, we should also deconstruct this idea of love is love and ask the question, where does it come from? Now, let's start with the way of Jesus. Historically, the Christian church has taught that marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, that's not all Christians, but it is the primary historical view of the Christian church. Now, with this, though, and this is key, When many people begin deconstructing the way they've been taught this, there is a lot of baggage and bad teaching that has happened with this. Um, Just a couple examples to give us a sense of, because some of you may not have any idea how you could even begin to deconstruct something like that because that's all you've known. Um, Some examples of that in the Christian church, often associated with the views of one man and one woman, has been poor teaching around the word submission. And instead of teaching mutual submission the way Paul does in the New Testament, um, it has often been done in a way that protects abusers and hurts the victims of abuse. The way the church has talked about divorce has often kept people trapped in situations where they've been hurting In response to teachings around one man and one woman, the, the church has often used the word abomination like a weapon. Hurting people who struggle with sexual sins and shaming people and kicking people out and hurting people and making fun of people. Purity culture, which was super popular when I grew up in youth ministry. On one hand, in my experience, I I, I felt like I experienced a healthy um, teaching of sexual purity in a way that encouraged sexual integrity. Many people didn't experience that, though. Instead, what many people experienced was that once you, were, once you sinned, you were no longer pure and couldn't be made pure. Many people taught a version of sexuality that shamed them for their sins. Many people were, were, get, were taught sexuality in such a way that even in the Christian church held up sex within marriage as God in a way that wasn't actually helpful for people living out that sexuality as husband and wife. Biblical manhood and womanhood in the church has often been talked about more with gender stereotypes than faithfulness to the scriptures. I would also argue that in teaching one man and one woman, what we have often ignored is any teaching about singleness. That the scripture, in fact, elevates singleness in an incredible way. Paul says it's a great thing. We have often erred on teaching only one man and one woman and not even highlighted the way Paul talks about being single. Now, on the other hand, 
If we are to deconstruct the origins of an idea like love is love, this is also incredibly helpful because in all of the baggage, what we could do is say, well, I've experienced some of this that is hurtful, not helpful, or I know somebody who is mistreated, and so I just want to move to something else. What I also want us to do is ask, is that path, are the origins of that path or where that path is headed helpful or good for me or humanity? The way the world primarily views sexuality, this idea love is love, is primarily rooted in the work of Sigmund Freud. Now, now Freud, the way he taught about sexuality, sex and sexual expression is at the center of human existence. He taught that the most important thing about who a person is, is their sexuality. In fact, the way he taught sexuality is he actually believed that children had a sexual attraction and connection to their mother at birth. That this was a part, the very essence of who a person is. And he taught that the, this sexual identity is so important that any restriction or restraint on that is not good for a person's happiness or for their flourishing. Now the challenge here is if, and, and maybe we wouldn't necessarily, most people wouldn't give credit to Freud, but we can see this underlying the way our culture thinks about sexuality. Is not the way that we treat sexuality in many instances the most important thing about a person? Right? To question the, even the issue of sexuality is to question a person's very identity. Our world often teaches that the most important thing about you is who you want to sleep with. I would suggest that the way of Jesus offers something better when it says that's not what makes you you. Now that's an important part of how you understand yourself, but it is not the most important thing about you. It is not so important that to have any restraint or boundaries on it is not good for your human flourishing. In fact, I would even argue, even in our culture, we still put some restraints on sexuality. In a sense, almost to the point that we are still not quite what Freud would be encouraging. Right? Even in our world, we would still put some restraints that consent is still a value. Um, polygamy for a lot of people would still be off limits, not necessarily everybody. And so we still believe that there is some level of restraint. Now, now I want to summarize this, uh, and, I, and actually Freud's words are really helpful here for us to understand the origins in the path. He said this, primitive man was better off in knowing no restrictions of instinct. So when he's talking about human flourishing and happiness and what's good, he's saying his goal would be primitive. Let's go back to the cavemen where people just did what their heart wanted. The heart wants what the heart wants. And so just give in to those desires, those cravings, that he would suggest is that's best for a person's happiness. Now he was also a little realistic and he understood that that would only work for some people. That it wouldn't actually work for everybody because people would be in conflict with one another. And in fact, a pr in primitive man, what it would end up leading to is the most powerful people would be happy and the, the weak would not. Or to put it more bluntly, the lack of any sexual restraint will be good for wealthy, powerful men. But not the world. And so the question is, what is actually good for our world? I would argue that what we call progress in our world is more primitive. And what the world calls primitive in Christianity is actually incredibly progressive and empowering. And the more and more our culture heads down this path, what Jesus teaches us will be incredibly countercultural, and I believe it will offer something 
so different. Now, just in case the example of sexuality makes you so uncomfortable and, um, and you just feel like, all right, is, this is just a liberal, conservative, political thing. I just want to push that out of the way. Um, there are a lot more examples that we can give. So I just want to share some of those that I think transcend any political. This is just about faithfulness to Jesus in the way of the kingdom, not about political um, ideologies. Our society, both Christian and not, have deconstructed beliefs and redefined what is good for human flourishing. Um, Again, referencing the book Live No Lies, there's an incredible list of some examples that this has happened. I just want to share some of those. We've redefined love as lust. That lust is the redefinition that we have created for love. That instead of a sacrificial, lifelong commitment, we've replaced that with something less than. That's the way our world has responded. And so once you don't feel that attraction the way you once felt, you're not in love anymore. Marriage has become about personal fulfillment, not a lifelong covenant. Right? And so once you're no longer happy, once it doesn't feel right, it's time to get out. It's time to end it. If I found someone better, it's, let's move on. Divorce in our world is seen as courageous and should be celebrated. And while there are examples of times where people are being hurt for their own benefit or their kids, they need to leave, I would believe we have made the exception the norm and say that it should always be celebrated. In fact, some of you probably know people who've had divorce parties, right? A sad reality of the state of our world when that is what is celebrated. The objectification of women in pornography is seen as female empowerment, right? Using other women's as objects for sexual desire is seen as empowering to women. It's just the freedom of sexual expression. Right, talk to the women who have been sold on the streets and how that industry has been fueled by pornography and tell me that's actually empowering to women and children. Greed in the marketplace is seen as just the responsibility to shareholders. It's just the way we have to run a business. It's just the way we have to make money. That our stewardship and our responsibility for the good and benefit of other people is not a part of the conversation. Workaholism is called hustle. And so we can put our family to the side and and work too hard, and that gets celebrated. Rest is considered lazy. Injustice towards factory factory workers in the developing world is, is called globalism. So we don't have to worry about where our products come from and the factories and the way they treat the people in those factories. That's just that's just the way it is in our world, and we can't avoid it. Environmental degradation is called progress. So we don't have to worry about our responsibility as being good stewards, which is the way Adam and Eve are described in the garden, being good stewards of God's creation. We can say, well, this is just progress. We can take advantage of all this. Racism, it's just a past issue. Let's not talk about it. Marxism is called justice. Infanticide is called reproductive freedom. See, what has happened in our world in thousands of different ways, we've said, how can we dismantle what we once believed? Some that must be dismantled, but what has happened is we've often reconstructed something that looks nothing like the way of Jesus. And when it's not like the way of Jesus, it's also not actually good for human flourishing. Now think about these things that show up, though, on a list like this. I think in it you can see a glimmer of hope. 
a glimmer of this sense that we desperately long for the kingdom of God. Think about it. We have a deep desire for love and relationship and community. Right? That's, in, that's, that's evident when we talk about we want love, we want marriage, we want happiness in that. We've just, in the failure to find it, replaced it with something less than. We want there to be joy and fulfillment and happiness in marriage. But when it's not there, we've just replaced it with something less than. We want women to be empowered. We've just sought the wrong means to do so. We want there to be good in the world. We want an impact. We want to move on from our past. We want to forgive. We want reconciliation. We want justice, nonviolence. We want peace. See, in the heart of all people, both Christian and not, there is a desire birthed by God because we're made in the image of God that there is a desire for the kingdom. The problem is when you seek the kingdom apart from the king, you redefine what human flourishing looks like. I believe that as we are faithful to Jesus, the only way for the kingdom to arrive is by Jesus who says the kingdom of God is at hand. If we try to remove Jesus from the conversation, the kingdom of God won't be in our midst. If you want women to be empowered, the poor to be fed, children to be celebrated and protected, if you want sexual abuse to disappear, the family to thrive, racism to end, and love to be loved, Jesus is the way. And so if we are to deconstruct the strongholds, maybe with the way we've been taught or the way the world has on us, the way that we might begin is by understanding the path we're on. The path that Jesus is leading us on. Tim Keller summarizes the early Christian church beautifully in the way that it transcends division and hate in the first century. He described it so well by saying it was not socially or politically beneficial to be a Christian in the first century. Which does that sound familiar at all? It's not socially or politically beneficial to the workplace and in the community. And so you might wonder if that was the context in the first century, how could a movement by this this rabbi, this carpenter, how could it possibly grow? Why would people become Christians when there's potential persecution, danger, and risk to their livelihoods, to their lives? It happened because it was worth it. And in the first century, get this, in the face of racial division, the early church was the place that was countercultural because it was multi-ethnic. It transcended race with a unity that wasn't seen in its surrounding culture. What if in our own day and age, what if the church stood apart from the divisions in our culture because of race as being a community that was multi-ethnic? A community that transcended the barriers And was united around the way of Jesus, the way of love. In the first century world, it was a culture filled with exclusivity, persecution, and attacking. The early church in it was criticized by being a community where everyone was welcome. What's the message in our own world? Is the church seen as the place where everyone is welcome? See, it often seems as though the world is the place where everyone is welcome. What if that was flipped and we, like the first century church, that our radical love and forgiveness and reconciliation was seen as that's the one place that they'll let you in no matter what. 
that they'll let you in and you'll be loved and you'll be forgiven and you'll find community and relationship there no matter what your past looked like. The early church was famous for hospitality to the poor and to the hurting. In the first century world where Rome was a, had a culture of greed and power, it was the church who was seen as generous. What if in our own world where platform and power and wealth is primary, what if the church said, I'm willing to lay that all down for the sake of my neighbor? What if the church was the place where the poor were fed, where the widows were taken care of, where the orphans were welcomed in, where the refugees were given a place to be safe? The early church from the outset was a community protecting the sanctity of life. In the Roman world, unwanted infants were thrown out and discarded. In our own day and age where the same continues to happen, what if it was the early church? What if it was our church who were the first in line to adopt and foster and come alongside women who didn't know how to bring a child into this world? And in a culture in the first century that was filled with sexual promiscuity, that was built around satisfying the cravings of men with power, the early church stood apart. What if in our own day and age, as we head down a path that I would argue is more primitive, what if the church in our own culture stood apart countercultural? to a path that ultimately will lead to satisfying the cravings of people with power? And what if the church stood apart with something countercultural? See, it's both the ways we've been taught to follow Jesus that have veered off the path of Jesus and the ways of the world that run counter to Jesus. Both need to be deconstructed. And I believe that it is in the reconstruction, it's in picking up the pieces of what has been dismantled, that we will find what Jesus described as the kingdom of God. Now to close, what I want to do is I want to give you four steps that you can take. If you were to go home and try to put this into practice, to think about your own faith, your own relationship with God, I want to give you some tools to think through how you might do that. And so four steps of how to deconstruct your own faith. Step one, I want you to take inventory of where your ideas start. So this week, um, write these things down. Where do my ideas come from? And just ask yourself, what are the podcasts I listen to? Um, what's the social media that I follow? What am I reading? Who do I talk to? Right? Just try to evaluate, not even the ideas at this point, but evaluate where do these ideas come from. And get specific, like what podcasts, what friends, um, what books are you reading? And just to get a sense of where, where you're being influenced by. And as you do that, just ask yourself the question, all right, what's getting my time, my attention, my money? That will probably tell, give you a good idea of what has the most influence over you. Now, the st second step is once you've taken inventory of where the ideas are coming from, step two, recognize what those ideas are. To begin to write down and ask yourself, what are the ideas that are being shared in these sources? And so write it down. Maybe you're with a group of friends and your friend said, well, well as a Christian, a Christian couldn't vote for so-and-so, write that down and ask yourself, all right, where is that idea coming from? What's going on with that idea? Or if you're on social media and you're scrolling through Instagram and what you see or experience as you're on Instagram is, I should parent this way. I should live my life this way. Write down that idea. What is it that's being communicated? If you're watching Fox News or CNN, write down, here's the idea that they're presenting to me about whatever it might be. 
Maybe you listened to a podcast and it said, well, Jesus never talked about sexuality. Write it down. This is the idea. And then step three, once you know what the ideas are, dismantle the paths. Take whatever that particular idea is and ask, where did that idea come from and where is it going? Those are the two key parts of the path. You need to ask, where did it come from? Where did they get I- that idea? Where does that idea originate? What are they reading? What are, th- what are the sources of my sources? And where is that idea headed? And do that ultimately to ask, is this good for humanity? Step three, I would encourage, do this with other people. For two reasons. One, as a follower of Jesus, I think you should do this in community with other people who want the same for your relationship with Jesus. Who want you to be faithful to Jesus and the way of the kingdom. Secondly, if you do it by yourself, you will result to creating an echo chamber of the internet and not ever find somebody who might disagree with you. So find people who will disagree with you, who will speak hard truth to you, who will challenge the way you're thinking and the questions you're asking. And then step four, this is the most important, surrender your journey to God. Because on our journeys of deconstruction, the temptation is to control the whole process. To control the outcome before we ever get there. To fashion an idea of God in our own image. To create a version of God that we want to follow instead of trusting God to lead us to who he is and what he's done. To surrender the control of the journey you're on. Your ability to know what comes next. And the way that Paul says that we have this power is the gospel The gospel of Jesus, who by his death and resurrection, the word power here that Paul uses is the word dynamite. That by the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has actually given us the dynamite that creates the explosion that dismantles the teachings that looked nothing like Jesus. Whether those teachings were found in the church or in the world, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, dismantles it all so that we might find and be faithful to the way of the kingdom. Let me pray for us, and we'll close with a time of worship. Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you have given us, and we pray that we might surrender to you our own journeys of faith. We pray that you might help us to identify the ideas that have have a stronghold in our hearts, in our mind. That you would help us to recognize those ideas and not only the idea itself, but where it comes from and where it's headed. Help us to deconstruct in a way that is healthy, in a way that leads to following and trusting you with our lives, with our friends, with our family. Jesus, we pray that we would surrender our control to you and that you would grow us in our faith, that you would teach us to trust and you would teach us what is good and what is right and what is true. We pray this all in your name.